Hi guys, this is Colin with Zone Motion, and today Buddy is going to be talking to Tim Kirchin. Tim Kirchin has a journalism career that spans more than 40 years. He is a MLB analyst on ESPN's Baseball Tonight as well as SportsCenter, and he's also a contributor to ESPN the Magazine and ESPN.com. Now in December of last year, Tim was named the recipient of the BBWAA Career Excellence Award which is presented by the Baseball Writers Association of America. And so he was officially awarded this during the induction ceremonies for the Baseball Hall of Fame. So he was honored by the Baseball Hall of Fame. I think you're really going to like this podcast if you like hearing about a journalist's perspective on the game of baseball. Uh, We get into some really interesting stories, some of them funny, some of them inspirational, um, but all of them incredibly valuable. So I hope you guys do enjoy this. And before we get started... I just want to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by the 10% More Baseball Development Virtual Summit, hosted by Zone Motion. We know that today's game is more competitive than it's ever been, and in order to get the most out of player development, and in order to perform at your peak, you need the best information that baseball has to offer. And most people struggle for a couple reasons. One, they either don't have the right information or they don't have the right tools, or they're kind of just stuck in their ways and they're not listening to real baseball experts on how they can get better, whether that's a player, a coach, or a parent. And so if you're either one of those, if you're any of those, then I encourage you to check out the 10% More Baseball Development Virtual Summit because it is a collection of baseball's greatest minds who are all answering one essential question. You have a player who's already performing well, They come to you because they want to be even better. What steps would you take to get them 10% more from their performance? So the summit is really a collection, a series of blueprints from all these different experts in baseball tech, pitching, arm care, brain performance, culture building. All of these different things are represented on the summit. All these different things are talked about in order to help a player get from where they are now to getting 10% more out of their performance. And so I encourage you to register. You can register for free. I'll leave a link in the description for this episode. And we're launching on November 11th. So be sure to mark your calendar and be sure to come prepared because there's going to be a really amazing lineup of guests. And you can read about each one of those guests on the website. Once again, that'll be in the link in the description. And without further ado, let's go talk to Buddy and Tim Kirchin. Tim, first off, congratulations. This has been a Certainly a memorable year for you getting uh, the career and um, it's called the Career Excellence Award. And uh, would, would we say you're inducted in the Hall of Fame when you get that award? No, I have. I was honored by the Hall of Fame. The induction is saved just for the players, as it should be. I am technically not a Hall of Famer, but there is a wing in the Hall of Fame for broadcasters and writers. And I joined the writer's wing, but I will tell you, I went to the induction, of course, on the weekend that I was honored. And on the bus, there were only Hall of Famers on the bus and me. And I looked around thinking, who doesn't belong on this bus? There's one seat open on the bus next to me. And this very regal, elegant gentleman looks at me and says, can I sit down next to you? 
and it was Sandy Koufax. Mm. And that's kind of how the weekend went. I have about 10 stories similar to that, but that just kind of sums up what that weekend was like. I got to sit next to Sandy Koufax as we drove from the Otisaga Hotel to the induction. It was an overpowering, overwhelming weekend, and I am the proudest man in the world just to be honored. Well, rightfully so. You know, you've you've done great work for years. Your your knowledge combined with um, just your personality is it's it's infectious, and a lot of people really really appreciate you. You know, in uh, in researching you prior, and I've known a lot about you, of course, but doing a little more research prior to this podcast, um, hearing the impersonation impersonations by some of these players <laughs> was amazing. And I heard, uh, I guess, JCR Seban, Elliot Johnson, I think there was one other, but and Tim Dillard. But the one by Elliot Johnson, I, I was dying laughing. I thought it was perfect. Who has been your favorite impersonator of you over the years? Well, I would say none of them because they make me look so stupid. And yet, <laughs> and yet it is laugh out loud funny. When Tim Dillard did it, he, he even crouched down when he did it. So he, he could be my height. It was embarrassing. Uh, Elliot Johnson was hilarious. I think his, I think he's got the crack in my voice better than anybody. Um, and Ryan Dempster did me inter being interviewed by Harry Carey. So he used my voice and Harry Carey's voice using only his voice. It was the stupidest thing I've ever seen. And it was laugh out loud funny. But J.P. Aaron Sebia was probably the best one, even though it's a terrible impersonation because it was the first one. And Tito Francona, that mischievous manager of the Indians was, or the Guardians was all over this. He set the whole thing up. He ambushed me on the air. I'll tell you that story some other time. It was eventually hysterically funny. But when I went to J.P. Aaron Sebia, like weeks later, I said, Please tell me that you do other impersonations. Please tell me you can do Jack Nicholson. And he goes, no, I can only do you. So <laughs> it was a pretty weird time in my life, but I guess uh, I guess I should be flattered, and, and I was, because it was it was really fun. And we're allowed to have a good laugh in this game. Oh, gosh. That's, that's the thing I miss most about the clubhouse, was the, the time before the game where, you know, we're just cutting up and, and uh, staying loose, and uh, it's certainly... Uh, a lot of fun doing that. So t talk about now you're, you know, you do a lot of different things in baseball. You're on ESPN tonight, you're, you do some games on TV and radio. And what, what aspect of all the things that you do do, do you enjoy the most? Well, I'm a writer first. I'll always be a writer. And that's has allowed me to do so many other things in this business, radio, TV, and because I was a beat writer for 10 years, which is the best slash hardest job I've ever had, that prepared me to do everything after this. It taught me how to write quickly, write on deadline, taught me where to get the story, how to get the story. And that has allowed me to make a relatively easy transition into television because beat writing taught me how to find a story and how to present a story. You just present it differently on TV. Um, I love doing baseball tonight because, as I told you, there's nothing, uh, there are few things better than sitting in a room or at a game surrounded by major league players. You know, Mark Teixeira, David Ross, Aaron Boone, Bobby Valentine, Buck Showalter. I work with 75, I think, former players. And the stuff I learned from them just 
watching a game from them and picking their brain. What what happened there? What happened here? That that's my favorite part of the job. Um, and my new favorite part is doing games from the booth on TV, doing games from the booth on the radio, because instead of having to wait the next day to see your story in the newspaper or at Sports Illustrated, where I worked for eight years, waiting a week to see your work, you are in on every single play. You are in on virtually every pitch if you want to be. And there's something really cool about talking baseball for three and a half, sometimes four hours doing a game. You are right in the middle of it. And as soon as the game is on or over, you get to weigh on, in on this immediately. And that sense of immediacy and spontaneity is what I love so much. Yeah. And you mentioned you started out as a beat writer and that was in Texas. And I, <clears throat> when you're a beat writer, when you were a beat writer down there, I should say, was there anything more thrilling than seen my my first major league home run off dave stewart <laughs> <laughs> well i must say i don't remember, remember it i was there buddy but i don't remember number one hitting a home run off of dave stewart this is of course before dave stewart became a great great pitcher and but yes i remember my beat writer days better than they, they were the best days of my whole life. I was young. I was single. I was traveling all over the country. I was getting to see games. I mid eighties with the, we'd go into the to Kansas city in the mid eighties and cover the George Brett Royals and that stadium, that atmosphere, that's as good as it gets. And maybe, maybe it's because I was in my mid to late twenties and everything. I was such an impressionable young guy, but I'd watch watch the Brewers play with Molitor and Yount, and then we'd go watch the Orioles play with Cal Ripken, and then we'd go to Kansas City and watch George Brett hit four line drives per game. It was a breathtaking time to cover baseball. My favorite time to cover baseball was in the mid-80s. Every year, every time since has been great, but when I think back to when I was a young guy, as a beat guy, uh, those days really stand out. Right. And so <clears throat> down there in Texas, you you uh, covered Nolan Ryan day in and day out. What was that like covering Nolan? Well, I didn't cover him as a beat writer, but I lived in Texas when he was pitching for the Rangers and I was working for Sports Illustrated. So I saw a lot of his starts and it was he was amazing, buddy. And what you do for a living, the thought that a man could throw a baseball as hard as anyone alive for 25 years is incredible. It's like being the world's fastest human for 25 years. That's impossible, except nothing was impossible with Nolan Ryan. And some of the games I saw him pitch, I, one of those games that Rangers were in a terrible losing streak, Nolan Ryan got on the top step of the dugout before he went out for the top of the first. And he looked at his teammates and he said, boys, this ends right here and then he went out and threw one of those two hit shutouts with 14 strikeouts he was amazing to watch one of my favorite people and players to watch and as you know buddy he was a beloved character even by even by robin ventura who he beat up when he ran to the mound that day but um uh rance molinix of the blue jays was once asked a long time ago what would life be like if everyone was like nolan ryan and rance molinix said Everyone would love each other and no one would get a hit. That's kind of who Nolan Ryan was. Very, very good. You know, I, I played with Nolan in Houston for a short period of time and he threw one of those two hit shutouts, complete games, spoke to the media. And then after that, he was running. We had a ramp in the Houston clubhouse, you know, off outside the Houston clubhouse, I should say. And after that, he's running sprints up and down the, the ramp. I was amazed, you know. 
his work yeah, after, after second to nine and such a good guy. After his seventh no-hitter, which he threw at age 44, his family and friends were out in the hallway waiting for him to come out and celebrate because he just wrote his seventh no-hitter at age 44. And he came out in the hall and said, I'll be with you later. I got to ride the exercise bike. And he rode the exercise bike for 45 minutes because that's what he did after every start. So yeah. it's not a coincidence. It's not a surprise that he struck out 5,714 hitters. It's because his work ethic was second to none. Yeah. And so you, when you were down there in Texas, you carried or you you covered a couple of uh, interesting characters who uh, wore the manager's hat. And Doug Rader and Bobby Valentine. Any any stories you have about those two guys? Well, how much time do you have about Doug Rader? Oh my God, <laughs> what an experience that was for me. By the way, he was brilliant, and he read more books than any writer that I know. He's as smart a manager as I think I've ever met when it came came to being knowledgeable. He was completely out of his mind also in the way that he did things, but I loved it. I loved the way that he presented things. He, in 83, he held a picnic um, in center field during spring training because he thought the guys were a little bit uptight. So the whole team sat on the center field um, in the center field area, eating hot dogs and drinking Cokes and stuff like that. Cause that's what he did to try to, you know, to mix things up. Um, we got in a fight one night, the Rangers did in Kansas city, 84, I want to say, and I'm pretty sure you were there and UL Washington was involved in that. And I've never seen a man angrier in my life than Doug Rader after that. And he looked at me and he said afterwards, he said, well, I was sure hoping we wouldn't go through the whole season without a good fight because he felt like a good fight galvanized any team. He was he was amazing. What the Rangers were really struggling in spring training. Boy, I hope this comes out okay. He found a homeless man on the street and he put him in his car and he took him over to the stadium and he put a uniform on him. And he fed him and got him all cleaned up. And he presented to the team, this is our new hitting coach. He's going to help you guys hit. And this guy had no idea what he was talking about. But Doug Rader presented him to the team and said, listen to this guy. He's going to help us at the plate. <laughs> and when it was over, Mickey Rivers, who's one of my favorite people ever, was like, tell the guys, yeah. This guy really knows what he's talking about. He was a homeless man that Doug Rader brought over. Those are three of a thousand stories. As as for Bobby Valentine, uh, I learned so much from him. From He was just so smart in the playing of the game. And I remember once asking him about a player. I'm not going to use his name. I said, this guy is really good. And he said, this will be, he was rookie. He said, this will be his best year. He will never have a better year than this. And he was absolutely right. I thought this guy was going to have a 15 year career and he was done in about three because Bobby saw something and alerted me. Don't get too excited here. This might not work. And as it turned out, he was right. Smarter than the average bear, uh, Bobby Valentine on so many levels. Right. And then, then you went on to Baltimore, if I'm not uh, mistaken, right? Covered the Orioles on the beat. Yeah, and I had Earl Weaver there, and Earl Weaver, again, I believe he's a top five, if not top three manager of all time. He was so much fun to be around. He was so smart in such a simplistic way. Always keep the double play in order. Let's not sacrifice 
sacrifice bunt. And here's Buddy, what used to drive him crazy. He hated to bunt because he said, we get 27 outs. I'm not giving up any of them. What angered him more than anything was when the other team was going to bunt and his pitcher didn't throw a strike. And he starts screaming from the dugout, they're giving us an out. Let them give us an out. That bothered him more than anything. Earl was so brilliant. The players were afraid of him, and he wasn't afraid of anyone. And famously, before I got there, but Pat Kelly, one of his outfielders, had decided while playing for the Orioles that he was going to become a minister. So he was waiting for the perfect time to go speak to Earl about this big move in his life. He was waiting for that perfect, poignant moment. He thought he'd found it. He went to Earl and he said, Earl, I'm going to walk with the Lord. And Earl said, I'd rather you walk with the bases loaded. That's <laughs> pretty much how Earl handled all things. But uh, he made me laugh and he taught me so much about baseball. Very funny. And you were around Cal Ripken daily then. How was how was that? Oh, it was uh, like nothing I've ever been around. He is the most observant, most analytical, most interesting player I think I ever covered. I think I wrote more words about him than than anybody else. And there are a million stories there, buddy. But I'll never forget. You remember the Metrodome they had when you come off the field in the visiting dugout, you go up that big flight of steps. I'll be close on this, like seven stairs, big landing, seven oh, yeah. stairs, big yeah. landing, seven stairs that leads you to the clubhouse. So Ripken, in the middle of the streak, you know, this is 19, you know, 86, 87, he after he finished infield practice, he would see how many strides it took him to get to the top of the steps. So once he made it in five strides, the game that he invented, and of course, he's the record holder in this stupid event that only he would 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 invent. OK, so once Rene Gonzalez, a teammate, made it to the top in five strides. So now Ripken is only the co-champion of how many strides it takes to get to the top. He goes back down to the field, starts his run again, and he makes it to the top in four strides. Oh and everything was good in the world because he was the champion at his game. It didn't matter what the game was. It didn't matter how pointless it was. It had to be played correctly and he had to win. Joe Orsalak, you remember him, played for the Orioles, yep. told me uh, several years ago that in retirement, he and Ripken were hanging out, and Joe apparently was a great ping pong player, like a three-state star in high school, and he played Ripken recently in ping pong, and he beat him 24 games in a row, and Ripken would not leave the house until he won, and Joe Orsalak said, he won the 25th game at two o'clock in the morning and then he went home. That's who he is. I have yeah. a million Cal Ripken stories. Those are two to me that personified the competitive nature of him. And he always found the easiest way to get something done. Yeah, he was so methodical in everything that he did. And he could remember pitch counts and everything else from from years earlier, he was like no one I've ever met. And anyone who thinks in some way he was an overrated player, I'm telling you, I saw him every day. He was an underrated player. Forget about the streak for a minute. He changed 
the position. Defensively, the metrics now that we've checked the metrics, he was even better than he was back then. I can tell you in all the years I've covered, I'm not sure there's anyone that I ever covered that I would want a ground ball hit to. Maybe not to his left or right 100 feet, but right at him and he's going to make the play. That was Cal Ripka. Yeah, agreed. How about shifting to today's games and specifically the uh, today's game, I should say, the the um, the postseason. Interesting that three of the four teams with the best record are no longer in the playoffs, which um, that's hard to digest. And growing up, uh, you know, we, we grew up years ago where they had the American League and National League and they played 162 games and the teams that finished atop each league played in the World Series. And now we have a lot of wild cards and it's great for the game to get more fans interested and get cities excited, but three of the four best teams uh, record-wise are not, not left playing right now. Any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I'm going to take a, a slightly different angle on this. I think this is what makes baseball the best game because of its unpredictable nature. As I told you before the show, buddy, I love basketball, but, and, and nothing against basketball, but in the end, when, when the Warriors are playing with Steph and Clay and Kevin Durant, you kind of knew they were going to win the game. And more important, you knew how the game was going to be played. Those three guys, and specifically uh, Steph and KD, would dominate the entire game. Like Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, they were always the best player on the court. They always, the game always went through them. And so it was more predictable. With baseball, you're, you're never going to be sure of what's going to happen. And this is how... You know, the Phillies were able to beat the Braves. This is how the Padres were able to beat the Dodgers is somebody got hot at the right time. And, you know, Clayton Kershaw can't pitch every game. You know, Mike Trout can't bat every single time. But Tom Brady takes the offensive snap on every play. You kind of know what's going to happen when the ball's in his hands. But it doesn't work that way in baseball. So I think the unpredictable nature of the game is its greatest strength. It's its greatest beauty is we go to the ballpark every night and we have no idea what's going to happen. And I, I think that mystery is what separates it from the other sports. And one reason why I love it so much. Well, I agree with you, and I, I totally agree with that. But the, the time off for these teams, it looks like it really hurt them. They, you know, the three teams that uh, aren't in it uh, offensively, they just didn't hit. I totally agree. It's a daily game. I've said it a million times. It's a daily game, and it's played best when it's played every day. And you take a few days off, it affects you. And you try, you can't simulate a major league game, not with a sim game or a minor league game or throwing to your teammates. The only way to simulate a major league game is to play a major league game. It happens all the time. But if you went back and asked the Braves and the Dodgers, would you like to play the three-game wildcard series? They would all say, no, we'll take the rest. The, the key is how do you handle the rest, handle right. the rust, and still be good? It's not easy to do, especially in this game. We're going to be doing a podcast uh, about that subject and from, with our, our theory on that. So m moving on, I, I'd love to um... – I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the new new rules that are going to come into play next year at the major league level with the pitch clock and doing away with the shift. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I'm in favor of the pitch clock. I, I saw a minor league game in Las Vegas in 2022, and I was struck by how quickly the game moved. So I think it's time for that. I think our pitchers will are going to have a difficult time, but I think they're going to adjust because they have to adjust. And I did baseball tonight last night with Todd Frazier because I've been told that a bunch of hitters are going to have trouble adjusting 
adjusting. They need to get comfortable. And I asked him and he looked at me and just shook his head. He said, no, every hitter will make the adjustment. He said, I wanted a pitch clock when I played. So I'm going to trust him that most hitters are going to say, all right, I got to get in there and I got to get ready. I may not have the same time or the same thought process, but I got to get ready because I got a big league pitch coming in in nine seconds. Let's go. I think it's a good idea. As for the shift, look, buddy, I'm 65 years old. I'm against so many things that are going on in baseball, seven inning double headers, ghost runner in the 10th inning. Sorry, totally against that. But I am in favor of doing something about the shift. Mark Teixeira finally talked me into this. Pretty good hitter, Mark Teixeira. Yeah. So his point was, he's just using Joey Gallo as an example. Joey Gallo comes to the plate and he sees four guys on the right side. And he says, well, I can't hit it through there. So I have to hit it over the shift. And that's where all the walks, the strikeouts, and the home runs come from. And I think we can all agree, we have too many walks, strikeouts, and homers, and not enough in between. So maybe if we put two guys on each side of the bag, and all eight infield feet are on the dirt when the play begins, I'm just using Joey Gallo as an example. Maybe he looks and says, wow, I can hit a hard ground ball up the middle and get a hit. Maybe I can hit a hard ground ball in between first and second and get a hit. We have lost the value of the hit today. And I think we need to bring it back. And I think doing something with the shift might actually do something to put ball, more balls in play, get more hits and fewer home runs. I, I'm, I'm convinced now our hitters are truly most of them incapable of hitting the ball the opposite way. The industry has encouraged them so much to pull that ball, get the ball up in the air. Let's do some damage here, not hit a hard ground ball over there. I think the shift might do something to change that. I think it's time. Look, Mariners hit 230 this year, 230 and made the playoffs. It's ties for the lowest average in a full season by a major league team that made the playoffs. And we need to do something about that. But when the league average is 243, I'm sorry, that's just not healthy. When the strikeout rate is where it is, it's not healthy. We need to do something about it. And I think the shift would help. I agree. Love it. So um, commissioner for a day, you already answered a couple, I think, but commissioner for, for a day, three changes. You, got, you can make the executive order right here. What would they be? Well, I would do the shift and I would do the pitch clock. That's two. Um, sorry, buddy. I'm not playing with a runner on second base in the 10th inning anymore. It's just, it's just not the way the game has been played for 140 years. And I think, sadly, what it does when we do that is it really points out how, how bad we are today. I'm sorry. Of moving a guy from second to third with, with one out. I mean, we're not very good at that. We're not very good at productive outs. We're not very good at putting the ball in play and advancing a runner. And I think that runner at second just just ex, you know, ex shows us that we need to do better at situational baseball. And we're, we don't butt. We don't hit a ground ball to the second base. We're not. And when we do get that guy to third with one out, we're not very good at putting the ball in the air and getting that guy in with a sacrifice fly. So I would certainly get rid of that. Um, so those are three things that I would consider doing because I, I think, I just think, I know we're trying to save time, but look, it, it's okay to challenge a player and tell him, look, I need you to go nine innings today. I need you to play as a position player 
15 innings today. When Dick Hauser told you, buddy, I need you to play the whole game at shortstop, you would say, well, where do I sign up? Of course I'm going to play right. the whole game. I, I think we've taken our players, especially our starting pitchers, and we've taken some of their value away from them by saying, no, you're not going more than five or you're not going more than six. So it, it comes back to analytics. I, I love analytics. I think I'm a son of a mathematician, PhD in MIT, from MIT. But I think we've stopped watching the games. And if I could make a change, I would say, let's watch the games. That's what's most important. The game cannot be mapped out on a set of statistics or on a spreadsheet or on, on a computer somewhere. Let's watch the games and determine if this pitcher should stay in or come out. It should be determined by what we see with our eyes and hear with our ears. Yep, agreed. So uh, one more question, then we'll let you go. Really appreciate your time. But um expansion do you think expansion is on the horizon if so how soon and, and where might we see ball clubs in, in in what cities well i think expansion makes sense to get to 32 teams 16 in each league it makes all the sense in the world but i'm i'm not in favor of expansion at the moment i think we have to solve the oakland tampa bay situation as quickly as possible i mean i remember bud Selig telling me 15 years ago, we have to do something about Oakland and Tampa, and we still haven't done that yet. Once we get them into new stadiums, into better situations, then we can expand and then we can go to, you know, to Charlotte or Nashville or Orlando or Portland or Las Vegas or somewhere. Because uh, those places, Montreal, those places deserve baseball. I would love to see 32 teams. But we're not going to expand until we solve the problem in Oakland and Tampa Bay with either new stadiums, upgrades, whatever it is, because they're, they're not on the same even playing field as the rest. And they should be. Great. Well, Tim, we just are extremely grateful to have, uh, have you on the Zone Motion podcast. You bring so much joy to the baseball world. Um, I think you probably don't know how much, but listening to you and your stories and, and your knowledge and, and just, uh, you know, all the energy that you bring to this game day in and day out is uh, such a pleasure. So thanks for spending a bit of time with us. It's on motion. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate it, buddy. Thank you, Colin. Again, I, I love the game. It's all I've ever had is a deep-seated love for the game. And I'm 65, and I love it as much today as I did when I was five. And that's, that's really saying something. And easy to see. Thanks so much. Okay, thank you.